Will Enid's hopes of a family Christmas reunion come true? I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and in this episode I discuss the second half of September's book The Corrections by Jonathan Franson. So each month I take a book I've never read, I split it in two and discuss each half on the second and last Fridays of the month. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. Be aware there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes, so please leave a comment or start a conversation below. Or if you're listening to the podcast, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So this episode is all about the second half of the corrections from page 325. So Alfred wakes on board the Nordic Pleasure Lines ship and begins hallucinating. Enid confirms that Chuck Meisner became very rich from insider trading. Quote, It was Chuck Meisner's big investment in Erie Belt stock on the eve of the mid-pack buyout that had helped fund their mansion in Paradise Valley. Chuck had become board chairman of his bank while Alfred stalled in the mid-pack's second echelon and put his savings into inflation-prone annuities so that even now the Lamberts could not afford Nordic Pleasure Lines quality unless Enid dipped into private funds, which she did to escape going mad with envy. Alfred goes to bed early, so she makes friends with Sylvia Roth, who's a Pennsylvanian, and they play the slot machines. Afterwards, Sylvia confides a secret, that her daughter, Jordan, was an art therapist who was tortured and killed by one of her patients called Kelly, who's being executed in Pennsylvania while they're on the cruise. Sylvia had a breakdown after the death and painted pictures of guns. She wanted Kelly dead, but her husband won't admit that Jordan was murdered. In fact, he has asked her to accept that he will never admit that she was murdered. And this really upsets and confuses Sylvia. Now, personally, I wasn't expecting this whole new idea from a random character just into the second half of the book. How will this affect the Lambert family? I'm very interested to find out. Anyway... Enid returns to her room to find Albert hallucinating about needing to strip away all of his bedclothes and she feels rather distraught about this. She plucks up the courage to see the ship's doctor and he's painted as a bit of a humorous jug salesman trying to give a wonder drug to Enid called Aslan. I guess it's named after the wonder lion in Narnia who sets all wrongs to rights. I feel like the humour of Dr Hibbard who is treating Enid, downplays the seriousness of her situation trying to cope with Alfred. Anyway, she takes a pill and feels much better. It eliminates all her feelings of shame. Now, Alfred suffers with night terrors in the night and Enid goes to a financial seminar run by a Jim Crowleyus character called Surviving the Corrections. He compares the financial markets to a ship at sea that may need course corrections navigate. Quote, when you go cruising the high seas of high finance, this is a deep ocean. This is your life. And then we move to a new section called Generations and meet a woman called Robin Passafaro. Quote, a Philadelphian from a family of troublemakers. She's friends with Denise and talks about her delinquent brother, Billy, who has been put into prison for injuring the head of a large computer corporation. And this head is called a Rick Flauberg. So Rick Flauberg was doing a deal with the city that Billy found very distasteful. And as she is listening, Denise imagines, quote, 
Bringing Billy and her brother Chip together over dinner and listening while they compared notes about the bureaucracy. They do seem rather similar. Now, Robin's husband becomes rich selling an idea to the computer corporation. He wants to move out of Philadelphia, but she likes her life there. And I'm thinking this better be relevant to the overarching story, Franson. You can't introduce a whole host of arbitrary characters this late in your novel and get away with it, surely. What do you think? Anyway, Billy, the brother, doesn't really get on with Robin. In fact, he's always been really nasty to her, and we don't really get to the bottom of why. And I'm thinking this is a definite flaw so far. It's put down to a vague notion of pre-adoptive trauma. Quote, neglect or cerebral trauma. And it's glossed over pretty quickly. It reminds me of the stereotyping of Lithuania. Is Franzen saying, I need a bad character? Oh yes, pre-adoptive trauma. That'll do as a reason. I think that this sensitive subject should be treated with a lot more care and sympathy. Am I being unfair in thinking this? I just think that any disease or neuroses that puts someone at a disadvantage in a novel should be treated with a great amount of sensitivity. Yes, I sometimes feel that Alfred's disease isn't treated with the sensitivity it deserves. Or am I being unfair to the author? What do you think? I would love to hear your comments. Anyway, Brian and Robin embark on an interesting project now that they are wealthy. By the way, we haven't seen how their stories intersect yet. I hope Denise doesn't have an affair with Robin's husband, Brian. Then we cut to Denise. She's given a job by her father at Midland Pacific Railroad, and she is very competitive. She excels in the signal department office and, quote, in a big sunny room with twin rows of drafting tables, she became acquainted with the desires of a dozen older men. Poor Denise. She works hard, and we hear remarks out of earshot about, quote, the shortness of her skirt, for example. She asks her father what will happen if the buyout occurs, and he says men will be laid off, but not to say anything in the office. And then a character, Don Armour, one of the older men in the office, married with three kids, tries to get Denise interested in him. She is pretty young and naive, and the fact that there is such a discrepancy between them, both in terms of class, age, and wealth, bothers her. Quote, through an accident of birth, she had everything, while the man who wanted her had so much less. This lack of parity was a big problem. Since she was the one who had everything, the problem was clearly hers to solve. But any word of reassurance she could give him, any gesture of solidarity she could imagine the making, felt condescending. She experienced the problem intensely in her body. Her surfeit of gifts and opportunities in comparison to Don Armour's manifested itself as a physical botheration, a dissatisfaction that pinching the sensitive parts of herself might address but couldn't fix. Oh dear. He is going to coerce you, Denise. Poor, naive Denise. Ultimately, he does seduce her and she says afterwards at work, quote, She'd taken a liking to Don Armour's eyes and mouth. She'd determined that she owed him the thing he wanted. She was too proud to admit to herself, let alone to Don Armour, that he wasn't what she wanted. She was too inexperienced to know she simply could have said, sorry, big mistake. She felt a responsibility to give him more of what he wanted. She expected that an affair, if he took the trouble to start it, went on for quite a while. Now, whilst this is going on, a wonderful character called Henry Dizembert, a thespian and Denise's drama teacher from high school, unfortunately dies. But we do hear a little bit about him. He's a very interesting character. Anyway, she doesn't see Don Armour again, but goes to college, makes friends with Julia Vrace and makes love with another friend's father, Ed Sterling. Then she marries Emile Berger, a chef twice her age 
and works for him. She feels old and declares to herself, quote, I'm too young to be so old. She signs on as a sous chef at competitor Arden and meets the liberal college educated lesbian Becky Hemmerling, who she leaves a meal for and has a very stormy relationship involving fight after fight. And then she meets Robin's husband, Brian Callahan. Now, could it be that Denise is about to embark on an affair with him? Surely she is. They talk about opening a restaurant together called The Generator in a huge architecturally interesting space. Denise then travels to Europe under Brian's employ and she finally does, quote, the right thing by interrupting any courtship that was about to occur. This is a bit of a punch the air moment for Denise, interrupting her history of dating inappropriate men. Denise returns home and decides to win the war brewing between her and Brian, between his visionary architectural project and her culinary skills. Quote, she believed that if when the generator opened, the reviewers paid more attention to the space than to the food, she would lose and Brian would win. So she worked really hard on her food. Denise feels a cognitive disjunct about her actions with Brian and decides to try to befriend his wife, Robin. Robin is running a city neighbourhood farming project for young people and Denise goes over to see her. Quote, so what did you grow? Denise said. Robin shrugged again. Nothing that would impress you. And Robin says, well, like what? She says, like zucchini and pumpkins. I cook with both of those, says Robin. I see a blossoming culinary business in the future with Denise cooking Robin's farmed products. Talking of cognitive disjuncts, this desire of Denise to put right perceived inconsistencies forms the backbone of her character, and there'll be more on that later. Robin explains why she is not content with the money that Brian made from the company. Quote, Rick Flauberg's disabled for life, Robin said. That's the VP of that company he disagreed with the politics of. Continuing on, my brother is in jail for the next 10 or 15 years. This horrible company is corrupting the city schools. My father is on antipsychotics and Brian is like, hey, look what W just did for us. Let's move to Mendocino. But you didn't do anything wrong, Denise said. You're not responsible for any of those older things. Robin turned and looked straight into her. What's life for? I don't know. I don't know either, but I don't think it's about winning. They marched along in silence. Denise, to whom winning did matter, grimly noted that on top of all his other luck, Brian had married a woman of principle and spirit. Now, the narrator previously says that the big money win did not make Robin happy. She becomes a large part of Robin and Brian's life and she befriends the children. But when she sees Robin and Brian kissing, as married people do, she leaves for a couple of weeks. She clearly has a crush on Robin. There's a jealousy there. Robin and Denise start having an affair. Quote, her affair was like a dream life unfolding in that locked and soundproofed chamber of her brain where growing up in St. Jude, she'd learned to hide desires. She compares having sex with Robin in comparison to Emile. Quote, with Emile, sex was a very complicated recipe that she was often too tired for. Then one day she discovers Robin may be having an affair with another man. Denise retreats from Robin and her family and goes to New York to see her brother and her parents, Enid and Alfred. Quote, Not until she was at the pier and her mother kissed her did the extent of the correction she was undergoing reveal itself. She promises to go and see Enid and Alfred at Christmas. 
Brian stays the night at Denise's and in the morning Robin knocks on the door saying her marriage is over and that Brian didn't come home last night. Yeah, I'm thinking, because she's in Robin's bedroom at the moment. Robin goes on to say, quote, I'm kneeling in church and I start thinking about your body. Then we have Denise's thoughts, quote, Dred settled on Denise. She didn't exactly feel guilty. The egg timer on an ailing marriage had run out at worst. She'd hurried the clock along, but she was sorry that she'd wronged this person. Sorry she'd competed. Then they agree to meet up later in the day and then the phone rings. Alfred has fallen eight stories from the cruise ship, but he's still alive. And then Robin returns and realises Denise is with Brian. Brian immediately fires Denise. What a bad day for Denise. Then we move into an email dialogue between Denise and Chip. She tries to guilt trip him to leave Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, where he's working with Jadanus and the work is not unlucrative. She wants him to come to Christmas at Alfred and Enid's. Quote, Enid, who loves Christmas the way other people love sex. Chip says no, and then there's more guilt tripping of Chip by Denise. And then there's a big argument over money that ensues and Chip doesn't respond. It's a very, very sad exchange. Then we hear Chip working on Lithuania.com's website. Mostly it's lies. He's trying to sell sand and gravel to the West, allegedly, quote, because they'll need it because beaches will be eroded by global warming. The website offers Lithuanian privileges for sale, such as, quote, honorary doctorate of humane letters from Vilnius University, founded in 1578. No questions asked, access to wiretaps and other state security apparatus. The legally enforceable right, whilst on Lithuanian soil, to such titles and honorifics as Your Lordship and Your Ladyship and Your Grace, with non-use by service personnel punishable by public flogging and up to 60 days in jail. It goes on. Now, I think this would be quite funny if it was a made-up European country, but this Lithuania is a real Western European democracy, even when the book was published in 2001. And it reminds me that I did see a small quote from an article from the Baltic Times. Quote, Swedish journalist Johan Omans tells the Baltic Times, quote, Franzen seems to be an alchemist. Take some vague rumours, add the worst of your imagination, throw on top of that a few nasty comments and you've got gold. As if this were a true picture of Lithuania, one could with far more credibility say that the United States is a country of nothing but hamburger-eating 300-pound fatsoes and gun freaks where no one even can point out Canada on a map. He goes on to say, Vilnius is one of the classiest minor capitals the European continent can offer. And I'll put the link to that article below. Anyway, I digress. Going on with the plot. Chip feels dependent on Gitanus, not like a brother, but almost like a lover. He begins to understand how Julia must have felt. Quote, he felt much like Julia, perpetually fated, lavishly treated and almost wholly dependent on Gitanus for favours and guidance and basic necessities. He sang for his supper like Julia. Chip reflects on the guilt he feels at owing Denise $20,000 and the shock he feels that she may be a lesbian. He also reflects on the similarities between Lithuania and America. Quote, 
The main difference between America and Lithuania, as far as Chip could see, was that in America the wealthy few subdued the unwealthy many by means of mind-numbing and soul-killing entertainments and gadgetry and pharmaceuticals, whereas in Lithuania the powerful few subdued the unpowerful many by threatening violence. Anyway, a few days before Christmas and a rich Lithuanian oligarch appears to Gitanus to want to gain power by killing the Lithuanian president. This depresses Gitanus. He could lose everything. And when Chip suggests he go to America, Gitanus says he's unable. Quote, I'm not employable in America. As of next month, I'm not married to an American and my mum's in Ignalina. What have I got in New York? They got laws there. They'd shut us down in a week. Now that night... Chip dreams of being with his parents for Christmas. And next morning, the president puts the army on alert and Gitanus' bodyguards flee. Chip is instructed to go back to America and given severance pay. So Christmas at St. Jude may still happen. He phones his mum to say he's coming home and she's ecstatic. And then he gets a plane home after queuing for ages. And we go into the section, One Last Christmas. Things are looking up for Enid and the Lambert family Christmas project. Then we cut to Alfred and Enid. Alfred is trying to repair Christmas lights. Boy, does this remind me of Griswold family Christmas, 30 years on. Quote, It offended his sense of proportion and economy to throw away a 90% serviceable string of lights. It offended his sense of himself because he was an individual from the age of individuals and a string of lights was, like him, an individual thing. No matter how little a thing had cost, to throw it away was to deny its value and, by extension, the value of individuals generally. To willfully designate as trash an object that you knew wasn't trash. He recounts how he was rescued from drowning on the Gunnar Mirodel and considers suicide when he looks at the gun bought for his retirement. Quote, He'd imagine himself hunting and fishing, imagine himself back in Kansas and Nebraska on a boat at dawn, imagined a ridiculous and improbable life of recreation for himself. We learn that Ina did finally agree to the $5,000 patenting fee, but as her Aslan runs out, she starts to feel shame. She asks her neighbour, B. Meisner, to get some from Austria. Now, Alfred is enrolled in the Coroctal process, so she books flights to Philadelphia. And Gary gets to Alfred and Ina's, but he doesn't bring Jonah because he is unwell. Now, Jonah, remember, is his son. It's just him, which Enid isn't very happy about. The main pressing question I see at the moment is, will Chip get back to America from Lithuania? Or is he all talk? Gary is very sceptical. He also refuses to help his father out of the bath. Edith unpacks her ornaments and her simplistic and unrealistic view of the world is revealed. Quote, Everywhere she travelled, she spent the bulk of her pocket money on ornaments. In her mind, while Gary hung them, she travelled back to a Sweden populated by straw reindeers and little red horses, to a Norway whose citizens wore authentic lap reindeer skin boots, to a Venice where all the animals were made of glass, to a dollhouse, Germany of enamelled wood, Santas and angels, to an Austria of wooden soldiers and tiny alpine churches. In Belgium, the doves of peace were made of chocolate and wrapped decoratively in foil. And in France, the gendarme dolls and artiste dolls were impeccably dressed. And in Switzerland, the bronze bells tinkled above overtly religious mini-craches. Andalusia was twittering with gaudy birds. Mexico jangled with its painted tin cutouts. On the high plateau of China, the noiseless gallop of a herd of silk horses. In Japan, the zen silence of its lacquered abstractions. 
I love that description of how souvenirs operate to evoke memories and feelings. Continuing the narrative, Gary goes to a hardware store to reluctantly help Enid install a bathroom bar for Alfred to help him have a shower. He's a really horrible character and he tells the friendly checkout assistant that the stool he is buying, quote, would be good to hang yourself. He forgives himself by saying he was under stress. And then we learn that Aaron was not ill. He just didn't want to go to St. Jude, partly because of a computer game. We also learn that Gary bought stock in Axon that has risen by $60,000 in six days. And when Gary sees his sister, Denise, at St. Jude Airport, he's horrible to her. The first words are, you've become a smoker. I'm not enjoying spending so much time with every character being horrible to each other. I can't think of a single nice character in this book. And it's making me feel a bit low reading it. How do you feel? Anyway, Gary confides in Denise on how B. Meisner gave him six months supply of Aslan to give Enid and he shows her the packets. Denise laughs and says, quote, it's Mexican A, a club drug for young people. Gary fixes the bathroom rail and is horrible to Enid, this time about money, quote, Gary gave Enid the receipts for the bolts, which she regarded as the token of hostility that it was. Enid says, you can't afford $4.96. And Gary says, Mother, I'm doing the work like I promised, but this is not my bathroom. This is not my safety bar. Did I tell you he's not my favourite character? His horrible behaviour continues when he goes down to see Alfred and spies the shotgun. Listen to this quote. He thinks, quote, Do I let him shoot himself? The question was so clear in his mind that he almost spoke it aloud. And he considered it was one thing to intervene on behalf of Enid's safety and confiscate her drugs. There was life and hope and pleasure worth saving and needed. The old man, however, was kaput. He finds Alfred hallucinating in the bathroom and thinks, quote, Tomorrow is for me. Tomorrow is Gary's recreation day. And then on Thursday morning, we're going to blow this house wide open. And we're going to put an end to this charade. I hope he doesn't have the shotgun in mind. <laughs> Poor Gary is having another major breakdown. Then we move back to Denise after Brian breaks up with her. She stays with Julia Vrays, who discovers that her home actually, quote, belongs to the Lithuanian people since the funds to buy it were embezzled by Gitanus. Gary finds Alfred's shotgun in his room and begins to feel perturbed by its presence. Now, I hope Gary doesn't do anything bad with it. He's mentioned that he'd be happy if Alfred shot himself. These are not the thoughts of someone in the right frame of mind. Denise finds out that Emil Berger, her ex-husband, has taken her job at Brian's restaurant, The Generator. We also learn that Alfred will be living with Denise for six months in Philadelphia during the Correctel process. And now that's if Gary doesn't shoot the entire family at Christmas in a horrible parody of Chevy Chase's breakdown. I hope not. Denise becomes abusive to Robin and leaves her. And then we get Denise flying to St. Jude for Christmas. So that's two people from the family, two of the children that are at St. Jude. We just need to get Chip and then we'll have the whole family back together. Yippee, what a jolly holiday season will be in store for us. Somehow I don't think so. Call me cynical. Anyway, at St. Jude, she retrieves Enid's Aslan pills from Gary's clutches for her mother. And we have a wonderful description of her anger on the second day. Quote, the anger was an autonomous neurochemical event. No stopping it. At breakfast, she was tortured by every word her mother said. 
browning the ribs and soaking the sauerkraut according to ancestral custom rather than in the modern style she developed at the generator made her angry. So much grease, such sacrifice of texture, the bradykinetic languor of Ina's electric stove which hadn't bothered her the day before made her angry. Now, by the way, pause. I had to look up bradykinetic. It means, quote, pertaining to slowed ability to start and continue movements and impaired ability to adjust the body's position. Bradykinesia can be a symptom of neurological disorders, particularly Parkinson's disease or a side effect of medications. Anyway, continuing the quote, the 101 refrigerator magnets, puppy dog sentimental in their iconography and so feeble in their pool that you could scarcely open the door without sending a snapshot of Jonah or a postcard of Vienna swooping to the floor filled her with rage. She went to the basement to get the ancestral 10-quart Dutch oven and the clatter in the laundry room cabinets made her furious. She dragged a trash can in from the garage and began to fill it with her mother's rubbish. This was arguably helpful to her mother and so she went at it with abandon. She threw away the Korean barful berries, the 50 most obviously worthless plastic flower pots, the assortment of sand dollar fragments and the sheaf of silver dollar plants whose dollars had all fallen off. She threw away the wreath of spray-painted pine cones that somebody had ripped apart. She threw away the brandy pumpkin spread that had turned a snottish grey-green. She threw away the neolithic cans of hearts of palms and baby shrimps and miniature Chinese corn cobs, the turbid black litre of Romanian wine whose cork had rotted, the Nixon-era bottle of Mai Tai mixed with an oozing crust around its neck, the collection of Paul Masson Chablis carafes with spiders, parts and moth wings at the bottom, the profoundly corroded bracket for some long-lost wind chimes. She threw away the quart glass bottle of Vest Diet Cola that had turned the colour of plasma, the ornamental jar of branded kumkats that was now a fantasia of rock candy and an amorphous brown gunk, the smelly thermos whose broken inner glass tinkled when she shook it, the mildewed half-peck produce basket full of smelly yoghurt cartons, the hurricane lantern sticky with oxidation and brimming with severed moth wings, the lost empires of florist clay and florist tape that hung together even as they crumbled and rusted. She is having a bad day. Just look how those two lives conflict. She is going to have a hellish six months with Enid and Alfred in her home. Anyway, she finds a licensing agreement for Alfred's patent that was not sent and questions her mum, who tells her to drop the subject. Enid asks her to do the very important job of pinning the Christ to the tree. These are the Nisa's thoughts articulated by the narrator. Quote, Pinning it to the tree was a task for a child, for someone credulous and hopeful, and Denise could now see very clearly that she'd made a programme of steeling herself against the emotions of this house, against the saturation of childhood memory and significance. She could not be the child to perform this task. Talk about self-absorbed sentimentality. Yuck! Snap out of it, Denise, and just pin the thing to the tree. She takes everything so seriously. And this really upsets Enid. Poor Enid. She says she'll get Gary to do it. What a melodrama. I can't believe these are adults and not 10-year-olds. Rant over. Anyway, Denise discovers that her father knew and kept hidden her relationship with Don Armour at the railroad. She also notices his massive decline in cognition. He can't tell his left from his right. And she reflects that, quote, she never really knew her father, probably nobody had, with his shyness and his formality and his tyrannical rages, he protected his interior so ferociously that if you loved him as she did, you learned that you could do him no greater kindness than to respect his privacy. 
Alfred likewise had shown his faith in her by taking her at face value, by declining to pry behind the front that she presented. She'd felt happiest with him when she was publicly vindicating her faith in her, when she got straight A's, when her restaurant succeeded, when reviewers loved her. Enid says that if Alfred had moved to Orphic Midland for just two years, they could have been financially much better off. But Alfred didn't like the Roths, who are the older brothers. Anyway, I'm thinking Chip still hasn't turned up yet and it's getting late on Christmas Eve. Enid is still hopeful he'll show. I think he will too. I'm still concerned that Gary, in his depression, might do something very stupid. I'm very worried about that. Anyway, we do cut to Chip. He's involved in a Jeep accident with Gitanus. He strip-searched and left the struggle onto the Polish border. And I'm thinking, come on, Chip. Yes, you've had a hard time here, but your mother wants to see you for one last Christmas. Try harder. He's trying pretty hard, I think. His money is robbed from him, but he does manage to board a plane and get to St. Jude, where he's greeted. Enid states, quote, This is the best Christmas present I've ever had. A hooray moment there, I think. Now, Chip and Gary discuss Alfred's gun, the bullets and suicide, in a very matter-of-fact way. When Gary takes away the bullets, Chip even says of the suicide, quote, isn't that his decision? Gary puts a small box on Chip's dresser. It was the box of ammunition, 20 gauge shotgun shells. Quote, he had these out with the gun in the workshop, Gary said. I went down there this morning and I thought, better safe than sorry. Chip looked at the box and spoke instinctively. Isn't that kind of dad's own decision? That's what I was thinking yesterday, Gary said. But if he wants to do it, he's got other options. It's supposed to be down near zero tonight. He can go outside with a bottle of whiskey. I don't want mum to find him with his head blown off. What a grim, horrible Christmas conversation. Anyway, Christmas morning does come and Gary starts a big argument before leaving, accusing Denise of taking Enid's Aslan drugs and Chip embezzling Western investors in Lithuania. Gary leaves because he has to catch a flight at 11 o'clock and then Denise begs Chip to allow her to forgive his debt of money to her but he's very resistant. And then we cut to Alfred imagining that he is in prison but he's actually at St Luke's Hospital giving all sorts of abuse to a physical therapist trying to help him. The book ends with Chip refusing to help his father commit suicide. It's a very sad ending to a very long novel. Anyway... Questions answered. Will Chip get Anthea back? No, he didn't. Will he make those corrections to his script? Well, we don't really have more about the script writing. It all went into Lithuania. Will Denise's hiding of the patent contract backfire? Well, no, it didn't really backfire. Will the family be reunited happily for one last Christmas at St Jude? Well, they were reunited. Whether they were happily reunited, I'm not so sure. Will Denise persuade Gary to join them? It wasn't looking promising, but ultimately he did. And will the correctile process come to market in time to help Alfred? Will Enid and Gary's actions stop this happening? Well, he is going to be involved in this correctile process, but whether it's going to help, I'm not sure. Will Enid persuade Alfred to buy some eerie shares? No, he didn't. And now Chuck is rich. And will Chuck Miser become richer than Well, yes, he did. Overall thoughts of the book, you know, I quite enjoyed the book. I think it could have been hugely edited down. It's very thick. There were some nice little comments on society, but I wanted more poetry. Now, I recently saw the play 
The Death of a Salesman on YouTube with fantastic performances by Dustin Hoffman and John Markovich. The relationship between Donnie and Biff really reminded me of the relationship between Alfred and Chip. Alfred has very high expectations of his children but seems to spiral into depression, possibly in due to the high hopes of the American dream. What do you think? Is that reflective in this novel as well? I certainly felt a strong resonance with Miller's work in The Corrections, but The Corrections didn't have the beautiful poetry, the dialogue and the symbolism that it had in The Death of the Salesman. I felt like Death of a Salesman said so much more, but with the tenth of the space. Would I recommend it to a friend? I probably would recommend it to someone who is interested in family drama. I can't think of a single person I would recommend it to that I know, though. So there were some very interesting ideas to come out of that first half. The idea of population being equal to depression. Mr Roth has an interesting theory about the rise in depression as a race, how it can be corrected. He is discussing the greenhouse effect and the catastrophe of climate change on the boat. And he says, quote, Alfred, I wonder if we're depressed because there's no frontier anymore, because we can't pretend anymore there's a place no one's been. I wonder if aggregate depression is on the rise worldwide. Lab rats become listless in overcrowded conditions. There's the cyber frontier, but where is the wilderness? There's a so-called space frontier, but I like this Earth. It's a good planet. There's a scarcity of atmospheric cyanide, sulfuric acid, ammonia, which is a boast by no means every planet can make. I think that's an interesting comment on the rise of depression in the population, but I'm not sure there's much science to back up that theory. Another interesting idea, the implied author's conversational narration style. There's more of this intermingling of characters' thoughts. The previous comment about population rise by Mr Roth is actually articulated between a conversation Enid is having with Mrs Roth about taking the wonder drug Aslan. It starts off with Enid speaking, and then Mr Roth, and then Mrs Roth. I'll narrate as it's written to give you an idea. Quote, I feel so wonderful this morning, slept so well. Lab rats become listless in overcrowded conditions. You do, Enid, seems transformed. Just tell me this isn't related to that doctor on the D-deck. I hear stories. Stories. The so-called cyber frontier, said Dr. Roth. But where's the wilderness? A drug called Aslan, Sylvia said. Aslan? The so-called space frontier, said Dr. Roth. But I like the Earth. It's a good planet. There's a scarcity of atmospheric cyanide, sulfuric acid, ammonia, which is a boast. You get the idea. You've got to keep in your head all these little conversation threads that go on. You've got to draw out these threads. It's like going to a dinner party and trying to listen to all these different conversations at the same time. I kind of like the idea. It's a very interesting technique. Another idea in the book, the wonder drug as a theme running throughout the novel. We had the mythical correctile process outlined in the first half, and now we have this very real Aslan drug administered to Enid on the ship. The idea of a wonder drug to provide corrections is a very clear theme. Counter to this is the idea of humanity correcting itself through no medicinal interference. But Mr. Roth's idea by saving the planet and providing new frontiers for the mind to explore. An interesting idea. We also have and the idea of dwelling on the future rather than the present. On the Gunnar Mirdol, the, the ship, there are slot machines and lectures on investments. In fact, much talk is on the future of investments, the portfolio of Orphic Midland. Now, the acquisition of future wealth via investments is a persistent idea throughout the book. I think this representation of gambling and stocks being so important in the novel reflects an attitude of characters like Gary, Mrs. Lambert and Per Nirgen, who was the Norwegian Nordic cruise guest, who are living in the future rather than the present. They're escaping to the future. What do you think? Now, the novel's title is interesting. Jim Crolius said, 
quote, surviving the corrections. That was the name of his lecture on the Gunnar Myrdal. Quote, Crolius was speaking from a lectern beside an easel on which the title of his talk, Surviving the Corrections, was written in purple ink. And then we have Denise's job, of course, which involved corrections. Quote, Line and mile post number, the signal engineer hatched plans for corrections and the draftsmen sent paper copies of the diagrams into the field, highlighting additions in yellow pencil and subtractions in red. We also have the idea of phony democracy. Klaus says, quote, Jude, I really hate the phony democracy. The people in St. Jude pretend they're all alike. It's all very nice, nice, nice. But the people are not all alike, not at all. There are class differences, there are race differences, there are enormous and decisive economic differences. And yet nobody is honest in this case. Everybody pretends. Have you noticed this? We also have the idea of cognitive disjunct. Denise, in particular, seems to operate by trying to put right the cognitive disjunction she feels deeply in so many of her situations. She wants to correct these disjuncts. Quote, she was still feeling responsible 10 years later. What she was aware of that afternoon were the problems that Don Armour wanted to put his hands on her but couldn't was a problem. That through an accident of birth she had everything while the man who wanted her had so much less. This lack of parity was a big problem. Since she was the one who had everything, the problem was clearly hers to solve. But any word of reassurance she could give him, any gesture of solidarity she could imagine making felt condescending. This is cognitive disjunction writ large and it seems to motivate many of her choices. For example, Brian Callaghan, quote, was a former Haverford lacrosse player and basically decent man to whom nothing bad had ever happened and whom you therefore didn't want to disappoint. Denise let him touch her face. And when Brian's wife lets him go to Paris with Denise, Denise thinks, quote, what kind of idiot lets her husband go to Paris with a person like me? It's as if the stupidity of this action needs some kind of closure. In her mind, she's forced to take advantage of her situation with Brian. And then on Don Armour, the narrator says, quote, He was the only man in Signals who seemed not to love Denise. Again, she wants to put this right. He even admits later that it was a tactic to lure in women. He says something along the lines of, quote, The best way to attract a woman is pretend you're not interested. And then there's another interesting quote here. Quote, Denise was wearing a short electric blue thrift store skirt that in truth she was surprised was in compliance with her mother's Islamic female dress code to the extent that she accepted the idea that Lamar and Don Amour had been talking about her and the idea did have an undeniable strange headache-like residency status in her brain. She felt all the more keenly snubbed by Don. She felt as if he were having a party in her own house without inviting her. When she returned to the drafting room, he cast a sceptical eye around the room, sizing up everyone but her. As his gaze skipped past her, she felt a curious need to push her fingernails into the quick or to pinch her own nipples. And then Don Armour plays on her need to remove cognitive disjunct by saying, quote, I'm just trying to imagine what it's like being you. I mean, beautiful, smart, disciplined, rich. In her mind, she can only answer the question by, quote, letting him feel what it was like. And then when she almost has a sexual relationship with Brian, she seeks to rectify the guilt she feels by befriending Robin, his wife. After calling her and being rejected, quote, Denise slammed the phone down in its cradle. She was angry, among other things, at how fake she'd sounded herself. I could have effed your husband, she said, and I chose not to. So how about a little friendliness? 
Maybe if she'd been a better person, she would have left Robin alone. Maybe she wanted to make Robin like her, simply to deny her the satisfaction of disliking her to win that contest of esteem. Maybe she was just picking up the gauntlet, but the desire to be liked was real. She was haunted by the feeling that Robin had been in the hotel room with her and Brian. I'd now like to tell you a little bit about the author. Here are some notes that I took from Wikipedia. So, Franson was born in 1959 in Illinois. His father was the son of an immigrant from Sweden. His mother's ancestry was Eastern European. He grew up in an affluent neighbourhood. As part of his undergraduate education, he studied abroad in Germany. His 2001 novel, The Corrections, a sprawling satirical family drama, drew widespread critical acclaim. His 1996 Harper's essay, Perchance to Dream, bemoaned the state of contemporary literature. In recent years, Franson has become recognised for his opinions on everything from social networking services such as Twitter. He has said, What happens to the people who want to communicate in depth, individual to individual, in the quiet and permanence of the printed word? The actual substance of our daily lives is totally electronic distraction. And he's also talked about the impermanence of ebooks, quote, All the real things, the authentic things, the honest things are dying off. And he's also talked about the self-destruction of America. So thank you very much, Jonathan Franson, for an interesting book, The Corrections. I would now like to talk about the next book I'm going to read. October's book, Wide Sargasso Sea. If you're reading alongside, I'll be reading up to page 77, which is exactly halfway. Now, I chose this book because I've often heard the novel mentioned in conversation and my ears have always pricked up. The only thing I know about Jean Rhys is that she is a British writer writing in the early part of the 20th century and that she was born in the Dominican Republic and then moved to Britain. I also know that she grew up in the Dominican Republic and from the age of 16 she was mainly resident in England where she was sent for her education. This is her best known novel, Wide Sargasso Sea. It was written as a prequel to Jane Eyre and... I'm going to try and quickly read Jane Eyre between now and the beginning of October. I have read it before. It was a fantastic novel. I'm going to read it again so that I will be able to say maybe a few more things about this novel. So I would recommend maybe reading Jane Eyre as well. This is quite thin, so I might be able to do both in one month. I'm going to read the opening paragraph of Wide Sargasso Sea. Or maybe a few pages. They say when trouble comes close ranks, and so the white people did, but we were not in their ranks. The Jamaican ladies had never approved of my mother, because she pretty like pretty self, Christophine said. She was my father's second wife, far too young for him, they thought, and worse still, a Martinique girl. When I asked her why so few people came to see us, she told me that the road from Spanish town to Calibria State, where we lived, was very bad, and that road repairing was now a thing of the past. My father, visitors, horses, feeling safe in bed, all belong to the past. Another day, I heard her talking to Mr. Luttrell, our neighbour and her only friend. Of course, they have their own misfortunes. Still waiting for this conversation, the English promised when the Emancipation Act was passed. Some will wait for a long time. How could she know that Mr. Luttrell would be the first who grew tired of waiting? One calm evening, he shot his dog, swam out to sea and was gone for always. No agent came from England to look after his property. Nelson's Rest, it was called, and strangers from Spanish town rode up to gossip and discuss this tragedy. Live at Nelson's Rest, not for love or money, an unlucky place. 
Mr. Lutchell's house was left empty, shutters banging in the wind. Soon the black people said it was haunted. They wouldn't go near it. No one came near us. I got used to a solitary life, but my mother still planned and hoped. Perhaps she had to hope every time she passed a looking glass. She still rode about every morning, not caring that the black people stood about in groups to jeer at her, especially after her riding clothes grew shabby. They noticed clothes. They noticed about money. Then one day, very early, I saw her horse lying down under the frangipani tree. I went up to him, but he was not sick. He was dead, and his eyes were black with flies. I ran away and did not speak of it, for I thought if I told no one, it might not be true. But later that day, Godfrey found him. He had been poisoned. Now we are marooned, my mother said. Now what will become of us? Godfrey said, I can't watch the horse night and day. I too old now. When the old time go, let it go. No use to grab at it. The Lord make no distinction between black and white. Black and white the same for him. Rest yourself in peace, for the righteous are not forsaken. But she couldn't. She was young. How could she not try for all the things that had gone so suddenly, so without warning? You're blind when you want to be blind, she said ferociously. And you're deaf when you want to be deaf. The old hypocrite, she kept saying. He knew what they were going to do. The devil prince of this world. Godfrey said, but this world don't last so long for mortal men. And that's the opening few paragraphs of Wide Sargasso Sea. It seems like the narrator's been put into a very difficult situation. I'm not going to mention the link that I can already see with Jane Eyre, because I don't want any spoilers, but it's going to be a very, very interesting read, I think, to have a prequel to Jane Eyre. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. So leave a comment below, or if you're listening to the podcast, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. And if you want to recommend a future book to read together, do let me know. Also, if you enjoyed this, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe, or give it five stars on your podcast app. Thank you very much. I look forward to discussing the first part of Wide Sargasso Sea at the next episode of Bookshook, and that's going to be on the second Friday of October. That's the 14th of October. See you then.